Well, good morning, folks. Today, we continue in our series on the Gospel of Mark. Today, we're going to be focusing on the nature of the Messianic mission. Uh, We are still in the first chapter. Mark is still introducing us to this new king, this new Messiah. And, uh, and today we're going to get a feel for exactly what he will be doing. Um, I want to begin with having us consider the nature of the kerygma. That's the word that we find in the Greek that Jesus is going about. That's his priority. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What does it mean when we speak of the dominion of God? Well, one of the things I want you to, uh, to remember uh, I think it's real crucial as we go throughout the gospel going forward and particularly today is that the dominion of God uh, declaring the dominion of God is, is, is uh, the, you know, the God Yahweh is declaring something that was quite phenomenal in Jesus's time, you know, you know, relative to the rest of the world, a world filled with polytheism and, and, and animism and, and such. And, and the Jews worshiping God knew of, of the one true God, the God who is the God of all time in all spaces. There is no space over which Yahweh is not the God. That was this, that was the the word that the the Jews were to carry out into the world and to invite and to invite all the world through the way they lived into fellowship with this one true God. And so God rules over all space and time. And one of the things that uh, when we speak of the kingdom of the God, we we remember is that that uh, we ourselves tend to create fences and walls. I'll go into that in just a moment. And when when Jesus is going about in his messianic mission, what we're going to be seeing is that uh, God doesn't honor the walls that we erect. God doesn't honor the fences that we build around uh, our tables. Uh, in fact, God has a has a habit of knocking our, our tallest fences and our our most uh, secure walls down, and 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 showing us the false the falsehood that they speak. Um, dominion is not just about physical spaces, though. Dominion is about mind space. We heard from Chris's reading of Jeremiah 31 that, uh, God, you know, the prophet telling us that God's plan was to uh, what what but Paul will re- re- later call circumcising our hearts. He will circumcise our hearts. He will write upon our hearts God's instruction, this instruction about how we are to live in fellowship with each other and with God so that that all of God's creation uh, manifests the love of God. God's going to write that on our hearts and and, and write it on our minds. And, and so uh, the kingdom of God is about God's dominion over our minds, over the minds of, of those of us who are free to think thoughts that are not, not uh, in accordance with God's instruction and, and, and free to act otherwise. And so it's about God reclaiming the kingdom space, not just in the physical dimension, but also in the dimension of our hearts and minds. Uh, but but uh, certainly also the physical Dominion. Uh, the, the, we, we, as I'm going to mention in a few minutes, uh, are 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 a species that tends to claim patches within uh, within the garden as our own, and we tend to squat on them, and we tend to define uh, who it is that may enter into our patches, but also 
who God loves within our patch is. And so one of the things that we see Jesus will be doing is reclaiming the kingdom space, not just in our minds, but also in these patches upon which we have squatted. One of the things that we know about us uh, and our species, you know, the, the uh, Homo sapiens, is that uh, we, uh, uh, in our search for food and search for water, our search for all things that are necessary to sustain us, tend to find patches that we like uh, and declare them our habitat. And then we tend to create patches that then uh, are, have boundaries on them by which we exclude those that we don't li want living in our habitat. We tend to hoard uh, the berries and the and the food, uh, other food sources ourselves. And, and we tend to, to declare one of us, us as the alpha, the one who gets to set the rules in the patch, the one who gets determined who goes in out and how all of us are to live. And so one of the things that we've historically done is erected fences on these patches. That's an important element of our story because that's in contradiction to uh, the way uh, we understand we are to live together in the promised land. And one of the things that we do in order to enforce our dominion over our patches is that we create stories. We create stories that then justify uh, our our patch dominions. And, and, uh, and we create these hierarchies of human value that, that uh, justify uh, how people are to live in, in subjugation to the alpha and to the alpha's, alpha's lieutenants within the patches. And so uh, one of the stories that, that we created, I'll give you going way back, is something called a, a slave mentality that, is, that goes back from Aristotle that just simply observed there's certain, certain people that are just destined to be slaves. Uh, and so that was a, a story that was commonly told that we commonly say ourselves. I've heard it recently in justifying uh, the structural racism in our United States by someone telling me, well, if, if folks are not rising up by their bootstraps like I did, well, the problem is that their race has something specific to it that prevents them from rising up like us white folk. And so this notion of a slave mentality is a false ideology that justifies our patch dominion. And so this is one of the things that we do. Uh, another one that we do, another story that we create is uh, ideologies that justify our hoarding. And so, for example, uh, we have an ideology that's quite common in our time today uh, about freedom. And, and it goes like this. Uh, if, 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 if someone else comes and says that uh, we're going to knock down these walls and these fences and the, and the, and the vaults in which we are hoarding, uh, you know, the milk and the honey for ourselves or, or, or the protecting the dams that cause the living waters to flow into our parts of the garden more than into someone else's. Well, we'll say uh, that our story is that the most sacred value of our society is freedom. And if you knock down the walls I've created, you are somehow uh, attacking the most highly valued thing, which is my freedom. Uh, and so the problem is you are suppressing me and my freedom rather than liberating me from this falsehood and also from my unbelief that God actually provides abundantly uh, and sufficiently for all. So this is something that is a human phenomenon that's well documented in, by anthropologists, that we create these hierarchies of human value and we substitute within our patches our own definition of justice. 
And, and so we have the situation where we've created our own definition of justice, but God has created this definition. He's written it on our hearts. And so there is this conflict. And so what we see Jesus doing today is going back and reclaiming that that hierarchy, excuse me, that that uh, that territory, that mind space, God's justice, as, as we will learn, uh, will destroy these hierarchies of human value and then drive towards the reunion of the separated, which, of course, is the definition of love itself. So. Um, I want to give a little background before we jump right into our story. Just remind us of what the situation is. We've we've talked about it the last few times, but that you know what we believe Gospel of Mark was written at a time when the world was at war, when uh, when uh, uh, there was a Jewish Roman war ongoing, and uh, when when there was uh, great persecution and turmoil in Rome. Um, for Christians, uh, for, particularly for Christian Jews. Uh, and I want you to imagine as we're hearing this story that Mark is writing to a people who have their hearts rended by images that we cannot see in our story. But if you imagine what a war zone looks like, we've seen plenty of pictures uh, in our own time of the refugees of war. And imagine folks uh, you know, on crutches, people starving, famine, thirst, uh, all sorts of disease, people just looking for shelter. Uh, Rome had just raised the land of Palestine when they came in there for their first foray to discipline the Jews for their tax revolt. And so just within the Palestinian context, uh, there would have been uh, many people who have been rendered homeless, lots of disease, lots of illness. And so he's speaking into that situation as he recalls these stories of Jesus. I want to remind you, too, that, that last week we shared the story that Jesus was had had been, gone about and rounded up his own army, but they're not a, an army that uh, that carries weapons. They're an army that share bread. And these are going to be fishers of humans. And we, we went through the biblical context of that that helps us to understand the fishers of humans are those who are going to uh, who are going to disrupt uh, the established order as part of the Messiah's efforts to turn it upside down and reestablish God's justice throughout the land. And so he has particularly named, we went through several, that includes uh, the, the, the imperial context. It includes also the uh, dominion over uh, access to God. And it, it, it includes uh, several other uh, spaces, patches of, of just normal life. And every one of them, the fish of humans are going to help Jesus disrupt and restore God's order. Now, one of the things that we're going to be talking about today are the scribes. The scribe, uh, a scribe is a character uh, I'll talk more about, but a, a, a scribe is a, a character in our story uh, who could be either of the Sadducee party, which is the established party, or the opposition party, the primary opposition party, the Pharisees. It could be either one of these, but their, their role is particularly in our places of worship. They're the ones who have the authority. That's the key word here. They have the authority to define what God's instructions are. They are experts in the field of God's word. They know Torah. So when they, they also the ones who lead worship. Now, this is before we have rabbinic worship developing. We, the, the notion of, of the word rabbi just means teacher, but, they, but the role of rabbi that we see in our century today did not exist yet in synagogue worship. 
but 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 the scribes were those who had the authority to organize and control worship outside of the temple, and they were the ones who had the authority to speak and interpret God's word. Very important to our story because one of the things that they allows them to do is control the narrative that by which we organize our communities, and that was one of the problems that Jesus was going to attack, and that's what we're going to see today. One of the other things that uh, the scribes uh, do in controlling the narrative is, is define when you can heal and, and uh, where you can heal. Well, one of the things that you know is you can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't do work on the Sabbath, right? And, uh, and most uh, healing is associated with some sort of temple ritual, um, uh, not certainly out uh, in, in the wilderness or in other areas. And so that's one of the things that's part of the controlling narrative uh, that we're going to see as operative today. And it's before we jump in our story, I want to remind you that part of our story today all happens within 24 hours. So I've, I've suggested to you that the gospel of Mark is like a video. It's very, very fast moving. And so what we see is in, you know, a day in the life of, the, of Jesus who has just recruited his disciples and is beginning his messianic mission. And the very first thing we see is, uh, is him going to the um, worship at a synagogue at Capernaum. So this is on the lake in Galilee, not at the temple. So one of the things I just want as an aside before we get into these stories, suggest to you, those of you who are very literally um, astute, notice that, that Mark is going to continually show us a tension, a dynamic, a dialectic, if you will. The temple is the place of the establishment. The temple is the place that in, to, Mark's, in, to Mark's audience has just been destroyed or is about to be destroyed. And they're having to contemplate what the world will be like after Rome destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple. And what we're going to see again and again, and we see today, is Jesus taking on the temple establishment. And you'll see a dialectic between temple and the people who are associated with, with its controlling narrative and the home and the house worship, which is the place that over time, we're gonna see the church actually developing in house worship. So there's this dialectic that we'll see again and again, and Mark's gospel speaks to that. So let's just run right into our, our story. And we see here, that uh, Jesus is now establishing his ministry, and he's in Capernaum, which is the only city, the only uh, word that uh, that is used actually in Galilee for you know that, that Jesus will go to that uh, uses the word that the Greek word for city. So it had about maybe fifteen thousand uh, occupants, and it's right there to the, on the north side of the lake, the Galilean Lake. And one of the things that we notice that uh, it begins on the Sabbath. So this is that tells us you know, when this thing began. And Jesus goes into the synagogue. Synagogue uh, wasn't a particularly religious place. It was just a, 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 a small uh, gathering place within a village or a town where, where they, would, they would speak and gather to, to have worship because they, they couldn't you know, have it every Sunday or every, every Sabbath at the temple. Uh, and so Jesus enters the temple. Enters, excuse me, enters the synagogue, and he does something that for us may seem ah, no big deal. Of course he does this. He starts teaching, and we could really, real easily pass that. But he starts teaching, but he starts teaching uh, uh, in the place where he's not actually supposed to be teaching. The, the, the scribes are the ones who teach. 
And not only does he start teaching, but he, he teaches in such a way that the people were amazed in the, in the word there. They were, they were, you know, they were astonished because there was such a difference in his teaching. He spoke as one who owned the word, who's, as, as one who issued the word. And it was such an astonishing contrast between his, his teaching, this teaching of one who was simply a tecton, a, 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 a mason carpenter who had none of the pedigree of the scribes, who stands up and speaks so authoritatively that, that it clearly was an experience of, of someone speaking truth. And we know a little bit about the words that he was teaching because he, we, we'll, we'll, he's going to proclaim this um, kingdom that is arrived, that is coming. We've, we've already seen that in the previous context. And so he's not like the scribes. That's what the, the text here calls the legal experts. Suddenly then someone within there stands up and this person is afflicted. It says, you know, with an evil experience. And, and in the Greek, he says, why are you messing with us? That's, the, that's it. And why are you meddling with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus' teaching was very threatening to this representative within the synagogue. Uh, and he names him, he, he, does, he, he tries to do a power move on him. He, he tries to name Jesus. He says, you are the Holy One from God, which is the phrase that was given to, you know, someone like Elisha, Elisha. Uh, you, you're a prophet. He, he tries to uh, do a power move by having, by, 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 acting as though one who has the authority to condescend to Jesus by naming who he is and what he has, a classic thing in antiquity. And, uh, and then uh, we, we see this astonishing situation where there's this conflict with Jesus now and one who is, a, uh, is, is captivated by some kind of spirit. Now, we're going to talk about spirit captive, uh, possession in a moment, but I wanted you to make sure that we don't we don't forget, I rather don't miss the important point here. Jesus is going in, he's sort of invading a space that has been dominated by the scribes. And he's doing something that sounds very ordinary to us, but for the people, it must have been very shocking. And to, give, to help you get an understanding of this, so think about you and I doing something, it'd be a, sort of an ordinary thing. If I just said, yeah, someone stood up and they started to teach and they spoke authoritatively, it's no big deal. But for Jesus to go in and start speaking in this way, it must have been uh, something like the, what people would have experienced in situations that we can relate to later. Let me give you an example. Uh, a man goes up to a door and he nails up some papers with 95 theses written on them and he walks away. No big deal, right? It's just a normal Cuba in every event. And if that's the only thing I tell you about the story, you'd probably say, okay, I get it. That the plot pretty, pretty, uh, pretty basic there. But then when we think in the context and say, but wait a minute, these theses were naming the sin of the Roman Catholic Church and naming in the manner in which it was claiming patches of space and claiming dominion over, over the people of God and claiming how we were able to recognize who God loves and who God does not love and who is able to determine whether or not you're in the boundaries of God love is, is the Pope. Well, then suddenly Martin Luther's nailing 95 theses on the church at Wittenberg becomes a very big deal, a very radical act, a very prophetic act. 
Similarly, you take his namesake, Martin Luther King, or you take some of his um, his colleagues, John Lewis, uh, Congressman Clyburn, others, and you put them in Nashville at a Woolworth, Woolworth uh, water fountain. If I said to you, okay, there's some people who gathered that uh, were white folks and black folks, and they simply, uh, you know, sipped, you know, milkshakes at Woolworths, that would be no big deal. But if you thicken the context and say, but the scribes of their world had said they had no right to sip those fountains, well, suddenly that little act of drinking a fountain uh, drink at Woolworths becomes a very big deal. If I told you a story about them riding a bus, these same folks riding a bus, uh, no big deal. We people ride buses all the time. But if I thicken the plot and tell you, but the scribes had said, you don't, you're not even allowed to ride where you're sitting on that bus across interstate lines. Uh, well, then the plot is thickened. And so that's the way I think we're to hear this. Jesus has invaded the synagogue going and he has stood up and he has spoken and, and spoken with the authority in a similar way that John Lewis, Martin Luther King and Martin Luther spoke into their own context. And so this what we're seeing is a, an attack on the, the, the patch controlling narratives of the scribes. And it's important for us, I think, to think about what those um, who those scribes are. Scribes are not inherently evil. Scribes can be of God and often are. I, uh, I, and I would hope usually are, but at times they can be inspired by other things. And we're going to talk about some other things here. We just heard the word demon. Uh, but some, if you think about who the scribes of, of our time are, well, one of the, the recent pronouncements we've had from someone who serves in the role of scribes is the Roman Catholic Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith, who just in the last couple of weeks has, has declared that, uh, that, that, that Roman Catholics uh, will welcome persons uh, who are gay, but uh, they won't acknowledge, they won't hold their, um, their, their weddings within Roman Catholic churches. These are people who are the scribes of our times. And similarly, the Council of Seminary Presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, declared that, uh, that critical race theory and intersectionality and these models that are taught in, in uh, universities to help us understand our own uh, continued structural racism, uh, that that is uh, you know, completely counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are scribes. Um, a, better, you know, a more benevolent example would be a group of trustees, a group of trustees at Princeton who gathered and had to make decisions about whether the, the, the university will continue to honor President Woodrow Wilson in the way he has been honored through the naming of buildings and such, given the, the very powerfully uh, compelling evidence of his uh, of his profound racism. And, and so they had to make decisions about that. These are people functioning in the role of scribes, determining uh, in, in another example would be the cultural warriors of our time who um, who talk to us and, and tell us that matters like Dr. Seuss and 
and uh, and the like are, are the things that we should be focusing on and talking about in our Congress rather than equal opportunities in the way we live, equal opportunities in where we live and how we educate our children and whether or not we can participate uh, equally in our uh, in our Republican ways of life, our democratic ways of life. So let's talk about things that might inspire scribes, that might afflict scribes, that might possess scribes. The word that's used in the Bible is demons. What does it mean to be possessed by a demon? Well, the uh, us sapiens have uh, have um, have always uh, been uh, possessed by God's spirit. That's the story that we understand from Scripture. That a healthy sapien is someone who is centered by God's instruction. It's been written on your heart, as we've read in Jeremiah thirty-one today. So, what is a demon? And a demon is a force, an external force, some kind of external force that dictates our actions. It takes over our personal centers. As I like to think of it from a military perspective, a naval officer perspective, uh, normally the Holy Spirit is has the con and is giving uh, helm orders to to me in terms of you know defining which ways I go, which courses I take, and suddenly some sort of other external force has has stepped in, taken the con and starts giving those directions so that my actions no longer uh, uh, comport with God's instructions. And so it's it's invasive things. And historically, what we see is uh, distortions that are that are that are um, described through our through our own art or, you know, show statues where there are either muscles or genitalia or heads that are massively distorted relative to the rest of us is signifying that physical power or sexual power or mental power, ideologies, et cetera, distort us and they become these invasive forces. And I want to just mention that there's a distinction between how we are possessed and what it causes. We can be possessed by disease. We can be possessed by a, uh, by uh, spirits such as drugs and, and alcohol. We can be possessed by just a history of things that have mapped, uh, you know, so changed our mental mappings that, uh, that we see the world in ways that are not true anymore. I, I, I for one, have experienced that as one who has suffered from PTSD. Um, and we can also be possessed by ideologies that cause us to see the world in ways that are not true. And so when we sit, we talk about Jesus speaking truth into uh, this spirit, this scribe who is saying, why are you meddling to us? We're talking about Jesus's authority to speak truth into our uh, these invasive forces, these principalities and powers that invade us and take over our thinking that overwhelm our ability to comply with the um instructions of God on how we are to live with each other. And of course, this shook up all the people. Everyone was shaken and questioned among themselves. What's this? Such authority. And he even has the capacity to free us from our unclean spirits. Well, the story continues and tells us Jesus left the synagogue and they went home to, uh, they, they, they all went home with, uh, 
Peter, or rather Simon and Andrew, they went to, to Simon Andrew's house. And uh, Simon uh, Simon lives with his wife in his wife's home. At least they have his mother-in-law living with them. So they all gather. And one of the things we're going to see is, is that, yes, they left their nets, but this their home now becomes uh, committed to the ministry of Jesus. So again and again, they're going to be at, at, at Simon's house. Uh, and his, his mother-in-law is sick, and she's sick, it just says, with a fever. And they told her at once, and he does what you does. He lifts her hand. He just takes her hand and he raises her up. He uses the word that uh, we that we will later see when when uh, again they, they you know will again raise up the disciples themselves will raise up people. Uh, and the fever left her, and then she then began to do what a disciple does. She served them. She was restored to this capacity to serve them in her home. Uh, and, and I wanted to get a under, have us just dive deeply into what, what's happened here. Uh, let's think about, let's talk about healing. What does it mean, first of all, for us to be healthy? What does it mean for us to live? We've talked about this uh, before. And uh, let's just reflect on the fact that God gives us breath so that we might be touched by God's breath and thereby have this capacity to relate to God and to each other in this thing that is called fellowship, this thing that is called uh, loving fellowship, and then particularly have the ability, that relational capacity to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's who we are naturally. That's one of the things that we understand about us sapiens, that ever since the cognitive revolution, we've had this capacity to establish widespread relationship. This is who we are. We have this ability, and, and, and we're alive when we have this sociality with each other so that we're able to address each other, to respond to each other, to share a history with each other so that we have a depth in our lives. And this is what it means to live. This is what it means to be alive biblically. And even in our time, though, we forget that. Uh, when we say that life is changed, not ended, what we're saying is that uh, somehow through the course of our lives, we have created these deep bonds, these relations that survive our death, this ability to address each other and to, to experience each other's presence somehow in a mystical way that we don't understand continues even after our death so that we continue to be touched by the departed. So what do demons do? Well, they attack this capacity. They attack our capacity to relate to each other and to relate to God, to be in right relationship with each other. And then the, this, this attack on our capacity for relationality, for sociality, uh, causes us to manifest sin, to act in sin, and that then destroys relationships. And that's how the powers and principalities act on us. And of course, the way of love is all about Jesus restoring our relational capacity. So we see this situation when Jesus now encounters Simon's uh, mother-in-law. Uh, notice what he does. He doesn't talk about any symptoms. All we know is there's some vague word that says she has a fever. Uh, and I want to distinguish for us between something that we often think about, you know, in terms of biomedicine of our times today. We tend to think, to think about pathogens like uh, coronavirus 19. That's a that's a pathogen that has invaded us. And that, so that's a disease. But an illness is not just about a disease An illness, whether we're talking about physical or mental illness is something that is that is a, um, a deterioration in our capacity to relate to each other and to God. And so 
one of the things I marvel at, I learned so much from my own wife, Sajina, who's a phenomenal physician, is that she understands the distance, the, the, the difference between disease and illness. And as a physician, she understands what it means to heal. To cure would be to, to eliminate perhaps the pathogen that impedes our living. To cure, I mean, to heal is to make whole. To, to make whole is to restore not only our, our, our bodily um, capability, but our social ability, our ability to relate. And so one of the things that she'll have with her conversation with, that, that she'll have with her patients is, now are we talking about cure now? Or are we focusing on quality of life? Because the reality is I can't rid this, this pathogen from your body. This cancer is going to is going to end your biological life. So our focus over the next few years is going to be on on helping you with the quality of life. And what does that mean? It means a quality of your sociality, the quality of your ability to continue to be human, to relate with all your other sapiens out there. And so when we call Jesus the savior, we're talking about Jesus, the healer, the one who heals our relational capacity. And so early in the morning, um, Jesus then gets up. But he, before he gets up, I, let me go back. He, he, he lifts her up. He raises her up, and she is then restored to her capacity to function and to address her, you know, Simon and her, and her daughter and, and, and the others that are gathered there in a normal human way. So next thing in our story, Jesus gets up very, very early in the morning. He as though he wants to avoid the crowds. We, Mark has told us that that they, the crowds have heard about what he did at the at the synagogue and they, and they and somehow uh, in other places. And now they after the Sabbath, they all start bringing uh, you know their their sick to Jesus for healing. And he and he does an awful lot of that. He doesn't tell us any of the stories. He just gives us a summary sentence about that. And then we see, though, after having done that early in the morning, he gets up as though to avoid the crowds. And he goes to some wilderness area nearby, the Capernaum, and he prays. He prays. And, and then Scripture tells us that Simon and those uh, with him hunted him down. The word is, is literally like a, a tracking. They tracked him down. And they, and they say, hey, where you been, man? Everybody's looking for you. They, they, they want you to continue all this healing stuff is the implication. And he replied something that's really odd. I want you to notice the oddness of this. He doesn't say, oh, oh OK, what would you do if you were asked that? He said, oh, OK, well, let, let, me, let me gather my, my backpack and, uh, and, and I'll, I'll just finish this prayer here and we'll get back to the healing and the, and the exorcism. No, 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 he doesn't say that. He says, OK, let's go in the other direction. Let's go from the city to the wilderness and to the to the nearby villages so that I can continue this preaching, too, because that's why I came. Why did he come? Very important. He came to establish God's dominion. He came to go throughout Galilee and throughout Palestine and to recruit a fellowship who would then carry on this proclamation, this establishment this, that of the kingdom that he had inaugurated, the kingdom of God let's remember, is about God's dominion in our mental and physical spaces. Jesus is saying, I didn't come merely to heal you. I didn't come merely to exercise you. I came to proclaim this kingdom. And so what we'll see is that he will, he will heal, not as though that is his purpose of healing, but as a byproduct of his proclaiming. 
proclamation of this kingdom, uh, uh, this dominion that is now present is his priority. And how does he do that? He reclaims that kingdom space by speaking authoritatively, falsifying our false narratives, showing the falsehood in these narratives that we create in order to uh, maintain our patched dominions. And he reclaims uh, the kingdom space by healing our relational capacity so that this that, that we might have a restored capability of enjoying God and enjoying each other within this kingdom of God that God is now reestablishing. And folks, this is the good news. God is reclaiming all of our spaces. And he's reclaiming it for a reason. So that we may know that not just all of our spaces, but all of our times will become increasingly filled. Our, our capacity to recognize the truth about the world is that God is present. God is with us all the time. And as we are healed, we will begin to see and experience God's presence in our lives and, and, and experience the depth of all that is more and more. And that's the good news. May it be so for you. May we all continue to proclaim this good news. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.